Hello and welcome to the Toxpod. I'm Tim Scott. I'm Peter Stockham. And if you're a TAF member, you would have heard by now about the latest initiative from the new TAF Continuing Education Committee. And we're fortunate to have the secretary of that committee here with us today, Michaela Keneally. Hello, Tim. Hello, Peter. So tell us about this new initiative. Uh, so the Continuing Education Committee was formed earlier this year. Obviously, uh, in this COVID space, it's hard for us to all gather together, but sometimes it's hard for people to attend those TF conferences. So some of us are very fortunate to be able to or have attended one of the conferences, and there's a number of people that will never or very rarely be able to attend. So we really want to be able to reach out to all members and provide an ongoing educational opportunity, which is a online symposium that will be for a small fee for members and uh, hopefully provide some interesting speakers of varied topics. This year we'll be having it on July 13th. It'll be offered via Zoom and uh, registration will be via the TAFP website. Uh, with two main topics, we've got the therapeutic use of psychedelic drugs and then we're also looking at the minimum requirements of drug identification. Yeah, that's something we've talked about on the podcast before, definitely a conversation worth having. So July 13th, save the date and register at TAFT. All right, thanks, Michaela. And today we're going to do a 5 in 30 episode. This will be the last episode of this season. But we will be back with the occasional episode to talk about the TF Bulletin and also some later on in the year will be at Factor. Yeah, the Factor Conference here in Australia in November. It's happening live in person. We'll be producing a few episodes based on that, so stay tuned later in the year. Okay, so let's get into it. So our first paper today is from Politini et al. And it's in Journal of Analytical Toxicology. It's called LCQTOF-MS Presumptive Identification of Synthetic Cannabinoids Without Reference Chromatographic Retention and Mass Spectral Information. And then there's a bit more to the title. This is actually part two. Yeah, there were two papers. One was on retention time prediction, and this one was on spectral uh, fragmentation. So, of course, Aldo Politini was one of the pioneers in high-resolution mass spec and forensic tox. He was one of the first um, people I ever spoke to about it at a conference back in 2003 or something like that, in in Melbourne. And uh, he was the first one who opened my mind to this sort of possibility, and it's come to fruition. And probably like just then, he's still doing some stuff on the cutting edge here, looking at untargeted screening, but without the need to have a reference database for these compounds. So when, when we're talking about screening, untargeted screening, often we're not really doing true untargeted screening. We're always looking at a database because... As they say in the paper, true untargeted screening would be just uh, analysing a sample and then going from first principles, identifying molecular formula of every compound that you get out, and then getting a computer to manufacture a molecule for every one of those formulas, and you end up with literally billions of different alternatives. And as they say a couple of times in there, that uh, doing that approach is really not possible without uh, the next generation of computers. So they're talking about quantum computers would be needed to actually process that. But the next best thing is to use a database of, was it 39 million or so compounds that's on PubChem, ChemSpider, NIST. They have a number of sources of um, chemical formula of different NPS that are being released. And the order of the number of chemical formula that are in those databases, as well as normal compounds, not only NPS, is in the order of tens of millions. So it's not quite the ultimate untargeted screening, but it's getting closer. So this is something that could be applied to 
a wide range of compounds. Here they're looking at synthetic cannabinoids and using this so-called quantitative structure property relationship modeling. Yeah, so every chemical formula can be described using what they call the SMILES code, and they use that SMILES code to pick out features of molecules that they can feed into a computer program. So they find a formula in the chromatogram, then they download all the compounds of that formula from these databases on the web, and then they use the SMILES codes from those formula to predict the retention times. Is what I understand it. Yeah, uh, that was part one of their paper. If you haven't read it, spoiler: yeah, yeah. they can predict retention time. <laughs> and so then they, each one of those formulas they get from that feed into this other software, which has got a relatively close relative retention time to what their actual compound has got, to get the fragmentation spectra. So they give an example for a couple of syncans, AB Beaker and MMB two two o one. I don't know that I've ever heard of either of those sin cans, Pete. I've lost track. Yeah. I try not to keep up with them. There's way too I just many. disappoint myself. But what they found with these examples that they've shown here is that the predicted fragments, although they did get the same fragments quite a bit of the time, they're a lot higher in the predicted model, and there's more of them, than in the experimental. Perhaps the experimental MSMS spectra just wasn't fragmenting as much. Yeah, so it's not, not a perfect algorithm to predict the spectra, but I think the point is you do get some of the fragments are identical. So from that point of view, it is very useful. This might be due to collision energy, obviously. If you do use a higher collision energy, then you're going to get more fragments from the parent. And so the higher collision energies may have more of a correlation to these predicted spectra. Which is a problem if you're only using a medium collision energy, I guess. So for example, for AB Beaker, they established what the formula was of this supposed unknown compound and then matched that formula up with PubChem and got it down to about 15,000 structures. And so then from that, they used their relative retention time algorithm to sort of narrow down the number of compounds to about 4,000. So there's no point looking at a compound that's got a predicted retention time of one minute when your actual compound comes out at 10, for example. So they got rid of all the ones that were pretty unlikely to be the right ones. And then they applied their... Um, MSMS fragmentation, which is actually a freeware program anyone can download. This is great that this is um, free stuff that you can use because I think you know a lot of people. If you're if you've got a chromatogram and you've got an unknown peak in there, okay. If you've got accurate mass and you can find out what the formula is, your next step is to go and search that if it's not in your own database against some of these online databases. But with one of those big ones, like if it's not on one of the normal databases, you go to something like ChemSpider, you get 15,000 returned possible <laughs> isomers. That's basically where you put down the, your work and go and have a cup of tea. Exactly. And don't come back to it. Mm. But but here they can go further because of this uh, retention time predicting model they've got and the mass spectra predicting model. They essentially did a library search in all these fragmented theoretical molecules and generally they got pretty good results. There's lots of ways of expressing it, but the most useful one I found was that 90% of the compounds that they looked at were in the top 10 results. Yeah, I think about half of them were the top result. Yeah. And then when they weren't the top result, they were at least in most of the time in those top 10. But pretty promising. Yeah, that really helps to narrow things down. And I mean, this is just a start of this model as well. They do mention there's various parameters that they can adjust, and they did try and adjust some of those parameters in the algorithm to see what what works best in terms of searching, but it feels like there's a lot of room still for refinement further to make this even even better. And how would they apply this? I think really, as they actually say, 
the results that you get from this are really a starting point. So this is your starting point to work out, well, it could be possibly these 10 compounds. Let's have a look at and see how realistic they are. And then you go on to buy perhaps the authentic standard if you need to. And you still do obviously need these compounds to exist in some database. If they don't exist anywhere, if it's a completely novel compound, well, you're not going to be able to find it even by this method. Yeah, so they say it would be nice to identify drugs from first principles, but they still had to use an existing data set. And the reason for that is because the computers don't exist that would currently make that a feasible option. Yeah, at least not in laboratories, I guess. Yeah, and even with the computers, they got a reasonable sort of computer they were using for this work, but it still took quite a while to process the data. I actually heard a podcast recently. It's called the Caring Scientist Podcast. Shout out to those guys. It's by a couple of scientists who talk about the environmental impacts of science, but one of the latest episodes, they're talking about IT in science and what the environmental impacts of that are. And basically, these when you've got a lot of computers processing this data, just chugging through it hour after hour, day after day, what the impacts of that are and how you can minimize that and so on. It's, so, it's good. So not just Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies that need a lot of energy. It's also general chemical informatics. Yeah, it definitely is. And they looked at a couple of real cases here and were able to identify what was in them. Again, with the um, collision energy we were mentioning before, they... They found that in one of the hair samples, for instance, the synthetic cannabinoid that was there at 20 electron volts fragmentation was ranked sixth, but then when they cranked it up to 40, it was ranked first. Yeah. There you go. It's quite promising. Yeah, look forward to part three. Imagine how disappointing it would be after 30 hours of processing a data file and it was diazepam or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure they rule out the obvious ones first. Okay, the next paper is from Forensic Toxicology. It's by Kuyama et al., and it's titled Development of the Selective Concentration, in inverted commas, analytical method for drug-containing hair regions based on micro-segmental analysis to identify trace amounts of drug in hair. So we're talking about single hair here, Tim. Yeah, single hair, because usually we're analysing a bunch of hairs altogether, cutting them in segments of usually a few centimetres, maybe one centimetre you can go down to, but usually it's more like two or three centimetres. And it's one of the problems with hair analysis is it's quite difficult to detect single doses of drugs, especially some of these low-dose drugs where you just the concentrations aren't very high in hair anyway. And if someone's been given a single dose, unfortunately, it's the ones that – or it's a lot of the ones where they might be used in like a drug-facilitated sexual assault or something like that. They're the ones that tend to have these lower concentrations sometimes in hair. So that makes a single dose of those really difficult to detect because the problem is – it's been given at a single time, so it's probably a very narrow band in the hair, but you don't know exactly where it's going to be. Hair growth rates are a little different and so on. So what you mean is that in every single hair strand, hairs are always in different stages of growth. So they might be dormant at the time of administration or they might be growing fast, they might be growing slow, and even two hairs next to each other could be growing at a different rate. So as they grow out, the drug's going to be in different spots. So if you have a whole bunch of hair, the drugs may not all be in that particular segment. But if you can analyse a single hair, then you can look along the hair and see where it is. Yeah, but how do you get the sensitivity to analyse that single hair? That's the problem. And so that's what they're trying to overcome here. And so what they're doing is using very small segments of these single hairs, just 0.4 millimetres long, which corresponds to the daily average hair growth. So they had a patient who was administered a single dose of midazolam about two months before collection. And so they use this as a model to mimic what might happen in a drug-facilitated crime. 
So they analysed this hair by their conventional method, and they did see a tiny peak from a Dazlam, but it was too low to confirm it. The qualifiers didn't work properly. And so then they took a hair strand, washed it, cut it at 0.4 millimetre intervals using a tissue slicer, put each segment into a different tube, added some extraction solvent and internal standard, sonicated, and injected it on an LC triple quad. But even that couldn't identify midazolam again because it's just not sensitive enough with one tiny little 0.4 millimetre segment of a single hair. And so that's where they bring in this selective concentration method that they're doing here, where they, if they detected a midazolam peak in that little segment, then they'd put that one aside, collect up all those ones where they actually found some midazolam, pull them in together, and then concentrate them up and then inject them again, and then you've got a higher concentration of midazolam. Right, so they sort of confirm it because there's been a couple of papers out recently. Another paper that came out pretty close in time to this one, maybe just after this one, by Widefield et al. That was in drug testing and analysis earlier this year, when they actually used a, maybe it was a more sensitive instrumentation, but they actually managed to get two millimeter segments of a single hair and analyze them on a triple quad. Yeah, so a little little bigger segments than what's here, but yeah. but analysing the single segments on their own. Yeah. No no pooling and concentrating. Yeah, another approach. I mean, we've seen single hair analyses before, but they're usually with mouldy toff, for example. We've seen that before, but not as analysed and conventional instrumentation like this. So Yeah, not many labs have that specialised instrumentation. So if we can find ways to analyse a single dose using more conventional stuff, like with this technique here or, or that other one you mentioned, it does depend on the sensitivity of your instrument, obviously. Interestingly, when they were pulling them to concentrate, they started off trying to just evaporate. You would think, well, that's a pretty simple thing. Put them all in together, evaporate it and reconstitute it in a lower volume. That makes sense. But it took a really long time to evaporate just because of the, I think it was it was a mixture of buffer and acetonitrile and stuff. So yeah, that takes a long time to evaporate. So actually what they ended up doing was putting it through an SPE cartridge and then eluding it off and then evaporating the elution solvent, which was much faster to evaporate, and then reconstituting. Yeah, it makes sense. It seemed to work pretty well. It's obviously pretty selective if you're doing it that way. Like you've got to have an SPE method that works for those drugs that you're looking at. Here they're only looking at one, so that's fine. So both this paper and the Weidfeld paper that I talked about earlier, they, you can actually – image, or not image, but you get an idea of where the drug is along the hair. So you can have the plots of two hairs lined up and doesn't see where the drugs are in terms of the growth rate of the hair. And as the hair, it's, it's sort of thing that we've sort of known about, you sort of assume is going to happen. As the hair gets longer, as the drug's moved up further up the shaft, the actual width of the hair peak is wider. So it spreads out yeah. as, it's, as it's growing. And these are the sort of things that you're thinking about when you're doing conventional hair analysis, because you know that not all the the hair's not going to be in exactly the same spot in every hair strand. Yeah. The trouble with these kind of techniques is that they're more laborious than conventional hair analysis, which is already pretty laborious as it is. Well, I told one of my colleagues about this earlier this morning, and uh, she said she's leaving if we start doing this. It was <laughs> <laughs> a fair bit of work, 0.4 millimeter hair. But, I mean, you wouldn't use it for general hair testing, I don't think. And the authors here don't suggest that. They're saying... Use your conventional analysis, but this is a good way of doing it in these particular cases, or you really suspect there's something there, or where you've only got a few hair strands available. I mean, that happens too sometimes. You might not have a big, nice pencil thickness, which is what we usually like to use for hair analysis. If only we could find a way to automate this, that would be the ideal situation. Mm. Speaking of automation, our next paper is 
one of our automation as well. It's first-line toxicology screening with fully automated extraction by Robin et al., and that's in the Journal of Analytical Toxicology. Yeah, automation is really important for high-throughput labs. This is a clinical lab. So clinical labs are usually even more high-throughput than forensic labs. But even in a forensic lab, automation can make a huge difference in your workflow in just being able to do more samples or just freeing up your time to do other things that you want to do as well. Um, the, The most difficult part of the automation is that link between the extraction and the instrument. You can get automated you know, liquid dispensers and things like that. Okay, that works for your extraction. We've obviously got automated injectors on our instrument. Yep. But linking those two things up, that's a really critical step. And well, their aim was to develop a fully automated quantitative screen using LCMS where they just load a blood sample on there and away it goes, gives yep. them a result. It's using a Shimadzu system with a Shimadzu proprietary device on the front, I suppose. It's got a great name. It's called the CLAM 2000. And it's essentially a protein precipitation method from what I could work out. Protein precipitation of 50 microliters of plasma, followed by addition of acetonitrile and internal standard infiltration. So to the plasma, this CLAM 2000 adds some internal standard, mixes it, filters it, injects it straight onto the LC triple quad. And the extraction takes about eight minutes they got a 10-minute run and then a bit of a post-run equilibration time. So you get a result churning out every 18 minutes from the system. So does the extraction happen as it's running or do they do a batch and then it starts injecting? Yeah, no, it happens in parallel. So the first one, obviously, it's got to extract first and then it runs. But then after that, it's extracting the sample while that last one's running and it's just going around like that. So very efficient way of doing it. Interestingly, they're using their... MS in spectrum mode. So this is a triple quad. So normally on a triple quad, you have a target iron and then you have one or two qualifiers maybe. But measuring those iron ratios from tiny concentrations up to really high concentrations, this is what we talked about in our too sensitive episode, Pete, is challenging because those ratios change depending on the concentration or they can change. And so they're looking here at a new way of doing it where you acquire up to 15 depending on the compound, optimize transitions for each compound to improve that identification confidence. So it gives you a quantifier iron, a qualifier iron, and also a pseudo MSMS spectrum. That's a very interesting concept. I think there's a couple of manufacturers that do that. But Well, I wonder if there's rules about the iron ratios for these 15. If you've got 15 there, I mean, do you even need iron ratios at that point? But I wonder if there are any. Or didn't they say it has to be a more than 80% match or something? Yes, that's right, because they're searching it against the library. Well, Because not all of these had 15. I mean, 15 is the max that they went to. But depending on the compound, sometimes you just don't get, get that many one. transitions. Well, I can see one on their table that has two. There's a few with six or five. But most of them have more than 10, looks like. So they validated the quant method according to EMA guidelines. One One good thing they did was assess the matrix effects of the other compounds in the calibration curve because they've got like, is it 250 compounds or something in this quant? Yeah, 245. 245. So obviously when you've got a mixed calibration solution, some of those compounds, if they're co-alluding, might be suppressing each other. Yeah, I miss that. This is good when we both read a paper because you pick up bits (laughs) that I miss. I'm sure our listeners pick up a lot of things that we miss, Pete. Don't worry. So where they suspected that there was some matrix effect going on there between co-alluding calibration peaks, they injected the drug alone 
and then again with the interference at sort of a middle level to see how the peak area changed and if there was any effect mm. going on there. That's, that's a good thing to do as validation. Well, and they were using stored calibration curve. So they assessed using a calibration curve stored in the software for a month and that seemed to work pretty well. So that's what they're doing. Saves a lot of time day to day. And they analysed some real samples and got similar results to the more traditional analysis. So works. Oh, I love it when things work. It's great. Okay, our next paper's from the Journal of Chromatography B by Cronenberg et al. And it's entitled Spotting Isomomixes in Forensic Illicit Drug Casework with GCVUV Using Automated Coalition Detection and Spectral Deconvolution. GCVUV. Yeah, do you know, this is this is not a brand new thing. It's been around for a little while. I've never heard of it before I saw this paper. So it just shows how much research is going on in areas which you're just completely oblivious to until you just happen to come across a paper like this. What is VUV then? Most of us know what GC is, but VUV, it's vacuum ultraviolet spectroscopy. So uh, normal spectroscopy we use, we used to, you can't go down below a certain number because air absorbs and your if you're using LC UV for example your mobile phase absorbs but you can actually go down lower lower in terms of wavelength and I think maybe the spectral peaks might be even sharper in VUV. One of the problems we have with mass spec as good as it is if a compound has an isomer that's very similar you're going to have the same mass obviously you may have the same retention time and you're going to have almost identical fragmentation pattern. And the notorious ones that are difficult to tell apart are um, different substitution places on the aromatic ring. So whether it's orthometer or paramethyl or parafluoro or whatever. But why is that important? Well, if you can't identify your what isomer you're looking at, then in forensic terms, then you can't necessarily get a prosecution if your guidelines says, says that the four substituted one is a controlled substance, but they don't mention the two substituted one, then... It's not a controlled substance in some under some legislation. Yeah, and even just knowing whether you've got just one isomer or multiple isomers in your sample, like you might see one peak on your LCMS. Or, or GCMS. Or GCMS, so you think it's one compound. How do you tell if it's not? You can't really with GCMS. It's, it's a bit tricky. But um, here, using this technique, they're actually able to distinguish not just what the isomers are, but whether there are multiple isomers, which is a really interesting thing. Yeah, it's complementary to GCMS, Yeah, as they say. I think it's because the absorbance is so constant for a particular molecule that you can, a computer program can predict or work out where, where an absorbance is. I'm not sure. But they've got coalescing peaks and they've got VUV spectra and they're able to deconvolute the UV spectra into individual compounds somehow. So the aim of this paper was to see if a peak with a significant coalition and even a similar spectra between these two coalescing peaks can be deconvoluted. And they're looking at some cathinones and some amphetamines as examples. They're using 2-methylmethcathinone, or MMC, 3-MMC and 4-MMC. And the only difference in those is where the methyl group is on the aromatic ring. Which makes quite a different UV spectra. It's heaps different. Yeah, but not a different MS spectra. Yeah. And you can see where this can be really useful probably more in forensic chemistry labs, but can be applied in tox, I guess, if we've got... I didn't look at the limits of detection and see how low they go. And interestingly, so they're looking at methyl methcathinone and methyl ethcathinone and the orthometaparaisomers of both of those. So in VUV spectra, those orthometaparaisomers all have quite different spectra, but the 
say, 2MMC looks very similar to the 2MEC, which is interesting because the extra methyl group there isn't really affecting the UV part of the molecule that's responding to the UV. Whereas in MS, it's the opposite way around. It's hard to tell between the ortho para, but obviously the methyl eth cathinone will have a different molecular weight, so you're easily going to be able to tell the difference between that one. Yeah. So they really are complementary, these two techniques. I moved on to the fluoroamphetamine isomers as well, so ortho para fluoroamphetamine. The differences between those spectra are a little bit more subtle, weren't they, Tim? Yeah, definitely not as noticeable. I, I thought seeing them for the first time, oh, that's that's not very much. But apparently they're so reproducible that you can even use small differences like that to tell yeah, the difference and, between them. And they, once again, they're going way down to low wavelengths, like 125 nanometers. And that's where the difference was down at that low level. So they adjusted their normal GC gradient to force coelution of the isomers and they tried injecting them at various ratios from 3 to 1 up to 9 to 1 and both ways, up to 1 to 9 as well, and then tried to deconvolute them. At 3 to 1, both the compounds could be identified by the deconvolution software. At 9 to 1, the major component was almost always identified correctly, but sometimes the minor component was misidentified, or in the case of the fluoroamphetamines, sometimes the software didn't even pick up that there was a minor component, so it's not perfect but it's most of the time it is correctly identifying that there's two compounds there and identifying what they are based on the match to a database and they also wanted to assess if maybe you come across an actual unknown which you don't have in your library how does that work so they took one of the components out of the library and assessed it again and they did get some false positive results there but still a lot of true positives and the match score for the library component was the same as before so quite a a very good match score but the match score for the removed component was much lower. So it did match things, obviously, in the library. But the score was much, much lower, which is a good indication that actually it's probably not really that thing that it's saying it's matched to. And then they actually removed both those components from the library just to see if you got like a completely new – two new compounds which were co-alluding. And in all cases, the deconvolution software still recognized that there was two co-alluding components, mm. even though it, it couldn't identify them. Obviously, they're not in the database. So you can see where this would be useful, particularly when there's a, a seizure, for example, and they're trying to work out what this compound is. And in, at that stage, you're starting out with a formula, maybe, trying to deduce mass spectra. could be a really useful extra tool to have in the toolkit. Something I'd never thought of before, GCUV. Okay, our last paper is from Chemical Research in Toxicology. It's by Elmsio et al., and it's titled Postmortem Metabolomics – a novel approach in clinical biomarker discovery and a potential tool in death investigations. Metabolomics, that's the buzzword now. We've talked about it a couple of times. We're starting to understand it even, Pete. Yeah. So metabolomics, when we're talking about metabolites in this context, they're talking about natural compounds that are produced by human metabolism. So they're not talking about drug metabolites, they're talking about just normal compounds that are hanging around in your body. And they're saying that the type and level of metabolites that you find in a sample will reflect events leading up to death. So in certain types of disease states, you might expect to see the same sort of stresses on the body and you might see the same sort of natural metabolites being formed. Yeah, they use this term metabolome, which just basically means the entire profile of all these different compounds which they can measure. So it's not – here they're looking at a disease, so it's not strictly forensic toxicology perhaps, but it's forensic toxicology adjacent because they are using – 
data which they generated from the initial drug screens and they're going back to that data and re-interrogating it. Yeah, I think they used uh, a protein precipitation drug screens and they used a QTOF to analyse it in data-dependent mode. So they've got all this, not only have they got their drug data, but they've also got all this natural endogenous metabolite data sitting on a computer doing nothing. And they thought, well, let's look at hundreds and hundreds of cases and see if we can link them up. It just shows how much data you acquire with these techniques like QTOF, which we don't really even know what to do with all this data. We use only a tiny amount of it when we're doing our initial you know, targeted drug screen. You're looking for a few hundred compounds maybe. Okay, you're only using a tiny amount of the data. Sometimes people do retrospective screening, so we're going back and looking at new drugs. But, yeah, there's so much more that this data can tell us, and here they're, they're making – use of it, which is great. So even though we got all this data there, we always, almost always, as one of the earlier papers mentioned, we almost always analyze it in a targeted manner. So we we ignore the stuff that we we don't have a standard for, for example. They chose, I wonder why they chose pneumonia. They chose pneumonia as a disease state. Yeah. So they've picked pneumonia because, for a few reasons, partly because a bit is known already about the metabolome that's associated with pneumonia. There's certain compounds which we know are higher or lower in people who have pneumonia, especially those who have like severe pneumonia or, or fatal pneumonia. And also because I guess there'd be a significant number of cases which have this, as opposed to some other diseases are more rare, so you wouldn't get as big of a cohort of cases to study here. So they had over 4,000 cases that they could use, and they picked out 176 of those that had uh, pneumonia is a cause of death. And they divided this into two, so they had a training set, and then they had a set that they were going to test the training results on, so the, the training software to look for markers of this disease. Yeah, obviously you can't use them all to develop the model or else you've got nothing to test them on. You can't test the model on the ones that you've used to develop the model. Yeah. That's not going to work very well. Well, it is going to work very well. That's the problem. It's going to work too well, isn't it? Yeah. And then they had control groups where the cause of death was not anything similar to pneumonia. They tried to pick things like hanging or fatal injury, things which weren't going to result in any changes to the metabolome that might be similar. And then they sim- well, say simply, because it sounds simple, they just got their software to export it into a compatible file format and then loaded it up into this uh, program called XCMS, which is a metabolomic-based software f- specifically for analysing mass spectral data. And so from that software, that gives you an idea of what's different between the control set, which didn't have pneumonia, and the, the set of samples which did have pneumonia. And so then you can try and work out whether those markers can be used in the test set to identify pneumonia cases. Yeah, so for instance, cortisol was higher in the cases which had pneumonia, which is known and expected. It's a stress hormone, it, so it's definitely found in higher levels in people who have pneumonia. And it's not just about the compounds that are produced in your body when, when you have pneumonia. It's also about some compounds maybe less in your body when you have pneumonia. So they're looking at both of these things. What's the difference in the profile here? So lysopc was lower in people who had pneumonia. This is another version of chemoinformatics. Yeah. Using orthogonal partial least squares discriminant analysis here. Or opsilder. <laughs> <laughs> Easy Come up with say. a better acronym, guys. <laughs> Could have called it the slops. <laughs> okay. Well, so then they applied the model to the validation set and they were able to correctly identify 105 pneumonia cases out of 122. 
So that's pretty, oh, that's good. pretty good. That, that's yeah. a high rate. Eighty six percent of that was. But for the controls, so these are the ones which didn't have pneumonia. They were a bit less successful. 105 cases out of 174 were correct. So, so it's a sort of a false positive. Yeah, quite a lot of false positives. And then they did delve in a bit deeper into some of those cases and they found that, well, maybe some of these had died from an unknown cause or had another disease which maybe could have been the cause of that profile. So so they took them out just to see what would happen and obviously it got mm. better. Take out some false positives, it's going to look better. But I guess the point is maybe they weren't false positives really you don't always know everything about a case. You know, when someone's died, there's usually a lot of combined effects. A lot of people have various underlying health conditions. Yeah, and imagine how many other health conditions they can look at now. They've still got 4,000 samples. There might be 10 more papers coming out. Oh, yeah. So as they say that some of these markers have been found before in the metabolome of living people with pneumonia, but this is the first paper to show that it can be done in postmortem samples. Yeah, this is this is going to be the really interesting thing with this field going forward because you know we know about drug levels for example in post-mortem samples drug levels change afterwards they can go up they can go down well it's exactly the same thing with these other compounds you've got this huge range Mm. of compounds after death some may go up some may go down but it's also going to be going to be post-mortem artifacts in there as well isn't there yeah yeah i wonder if there can be a time of death studied on on it yeah i think the sky's the limit with it like how many different things can you study with this? You've got so much data. But the question is just going to be, in postmortem cases, what's the variability between different people? You know, it, there's a lot of variability, as we know, with postmortem drug levels. It's probably going to be the same with these things. Maybe that means eventually that this is very helpful, but you need to have some more sort of caution about it as opposed to doing it in clinical patients, just like you do with drug levels. Yeah, well, often we're... When we're talking about identification, we want a yes or no answer. But pathologists and medical professionals don't always have to have a yes or no answer because then they bring in their own opinions and and Mm. examine multiple facets to come to a conclusion. So this could be just another piece of information that might be helpful to them. Yeah, just to say, hey, we think perhaps this person might have had this disease. You might want to confirm that by some other tests or whatever. Mm. But this paper does show that the postmortem profiles may be similar to clinical profiles, at least in the scope of this study. I wonder what putrefaction would do to those. Would it chew up the markers? or? Yeah, I, I think there would be a level at which you just probably couldn't really tell much about, mm. which is exactly the same for drug levels. There's a level of putrefaction you get to where you just like, well, I've got no idea what this drug level means anymore, mm. and I think it would probably be the same here. But I look forward to seeing a lot more papers about this going forward, about all sorts of different angles of what you can use this data for. That's put them under pressure now, hasn't it? Well, yeah, not just from this group. I mean, yeah, sure, <laughs> this group's doing great work, but I imagine there'll be lots of different groups doing work on this going forward. Yeah. Okay, that's it for another 5 and 30. I really enjoy these 5 and 30 episodes, Pete, because they make me go and read lots of articles. You know, we read more articles than what we talk about here, and there's lots of good ones. We can't put them all in, but it's, it's good because it forces me to do it, you know? Definitely forces me. And it's good when two people read the same thing because they pick out different parts. And so this marks the end of another season, Pete. We'll be back later in the year. And Pete, you're going to be doing a couple of bonus episodes in the meantime. Yeah, we're going to be speaking with the editor of the Bulletin, editors of the Bulletin, and get an update of what's coming out next. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.